afternoon comes from Matthew chapter 1, the verses 18 through 25, and then also we'll read from the Gospel of Luke. First Matthew chapter 1. Our scripture readings are in connection with the Lord's Day that we'll be looking at this this afternoon that deals with the doctrine of the virgin conception and birth of Christ. So we'll see what scripture has to say about this, beginning then in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So far from Matthew, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke as well. Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 through 38. Luke 1 verse 26 In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So far, the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing uh, from hymn 17, that is the song that Mary sang in in the verses to follow uh, the text that we read. Hymn 17, we'll read, or we'll sing stanzas 1 through 6. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 14. That's on page 528 of your books of praise. 
Here we continue our, our progress through the Apostles' Creed as we study uh, the Apostles' Creed. And the question is asked, What do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the, f- from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. So far, the Apostles, or the the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been uh, working our way through the Apostles' Creed over the, the last many weeks, and particularly looking in the, in the last recent while on the question, at the question of who is Jesus. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, and we spent uh, quite a while looking at that title, Christ. What does it mean? Uh, what are we saying about Him? Uh, And it is a a life-shaping question. Who do you believe that Jesus is? Uh, Now, this week we we start to make a a transition. Uh, Previously we've been asking, who is Jesus? And we've been answering that question. Now we're looking at the question, what has Jesus done? And roughly half of the Apostles' Creed is devoted to that question. What has Jesus done and why does it matter? Uh, So this is part of our confession as Christians. It's not just who do we say that Jesus is, but also what do we say that Jesus has done. As we think about that, it's probably good then to make the observation that the Christian faith is not just a belief or a set of beliefs about, uh, about certain doctrines, but also includes beliefs about history about things that have been done, things that God has done in history. In fact, almost three-quarters, 75% of the Bible is is a historical narrative. It tells things about history. Now, the Christian faith is not just a set of values, as some often regard it. It's a, 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 as merely a set of values, or a set of philosophies, or even a set of doctrines. It's a conviction about the truth which includes moral values, truth in that regard. Uh, It includes doctrines. It touches on philosophies. But it also includes convictions about what is true in history. And that is just as much an essential part of the Christian faith. Uh, This is uh, why names like Pontius Pilate, for example, are mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, because it's a way of saying, this is when it happened, and this is where it happened. You can look up uh, Pontius Pilate and know he was a governor uh, in in this part of Israel uh, during this time in history. Uh, His name is mentioned as a way of dating uh, what we believe to be true. Now, it's important for us to recognize that uh, because there are many contemporary forms of Christianity that would like to reduce the Christian faith to merely a set of values or a set of doctrines or even a perspective on life 
and would seek to downplay that which is historical. Uh, So some would say, you know, Christianity is an attitude of forgiveness or a philosophy of love or uh, an approach uh, to life that consists of grace. Uh, and, And then the actual facts of what God has done in history get downplayed. You know, the fact that God created the world in six days is is treated as, well, not really that important. Or the fact that Jesus died and rose bodily from the dead uh, is regarded as as perhaps really not all that significant as long as you hold the values of, of Christianity. Well, that approach to Christianity ceases to be Christianity. By, by definition, it is no longer the faith once handed down to the saints, because as we look at the Apostles' Creed, we realize the faith handed down to the saints is a faith that entails beliefs about history, about things that God has done that matter. As Christians, we believe that God has been working in this world from the beginning of time until now, and has done things that matter for the present day. Uh, That history itself has been heading in a certain direction to the the, the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, is to see history in that way. Uh, And so the Apostles' Creed now then begins to speak about things in in history, uh, particularly in, in the life of Jesus, And the first conviction, the first doctrine it presents to us concerns Jesus' conception and birth in the womb of his earthly mother, the Virgin Mary. Uh, It's a very clear teaching of Scripture, and and it has always been a universal uh, conviction of the church uh, from the very beginning that the Lord Jesus was conceived and born in the womb of a virgin, uh, Mary. Now, this is explicitly taught in two of the four Gospels. We read them, Matthew and Luke. We saw each of uh, their accounts of this. Uh, Luke's account is the most descriptive, and that shouldn't surprise us, because Luke uh, opens his Gospel saying, I I seek or I have undertaken uh, a historical account of the life of Jesus, and I've I've interviewed the eyewitnesses. So Luke would have actually gone to Mary and spoken with Mary and said, what was it like? What happened? Who did you speak with? What was it like to see the angel Gabriel and have those sorts of interviews? Uh, And then he records these things in his gospel. Uh, So Luke tells us that Mary was still a virgin, betrothed to a man named Joseph, living in Nazareth. And the angel Gabriel came to her with the news that she would conceive and give birth to a son and would call his and was to call his name Jesus and that he would be great and be called the son of the most high. Uh, now uh, Luke anticipates that we will be surpri- as surprised by that as anyone else would be. Uh, how, how is she supposed to conceive being a virgin? And so Luke adds that she herself asked this very question to the angel Gabriel. How, how can this be? For I'm still a virgin. And we want to pay very close attention to the answer that the angel Gabriel gives. That's in Luke 1, verse 35. Uh, The angel tells her this. He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, 
Notice that key word. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. All right, so what do we know about the virgin birth going from uh, that statement? Number one, sort of obvious, but we know that it was a miracle. It was a miracle. Uh, In the very next verse, the angel Gabriel continues and says, For nothing is impossible with God. Because Mary needed that reminder, because otherwise this would have been impossible. Uh, the, The virginal conception and birth of Jesus is one of those points of the Christian faith that's routinely uh, ridiculed, mocked, uh, because the argument is made, virgins can't conceive. Yeah, we know that. Uh, that, That's kind of the point. Uh, That's that's why we bother to mention it. Uh, That's why it's a miracle. That doesn't normally happen. That's the point. And, And the angel Gabriel also emphasizes that nothing is impossible with God. Uh, So to to the skeptics who would ask, uh, you know, uh, to the the skeptics who would say, well, this is impossible, we might respond, why do you insist that such a thing could never happen? We know it it doesn't normally happen. Uh, that's, that's That's the point. It's not normal. But why would you say it cannot happen even by the power of God? Uh, See, the only reason to to doubt the Word of God on this point is if you have a prior commitment to saying God does not work miracles or God does not exist. Uh, That's uh, what's called philosophical naturalism, the belief that nothing could ever happen except that which happens naturally. This was a huge struggle for the church, not, not, only, uh, not, not even more than 50 years ago. Uh, this was a huge battlefield for the church where, where naturalists were saying, even within the church, uh, we don't really need to believe that the virgin birth actually happened because we all know that that kind of thing doesn't happen. Uh, well, so did Luke. So did Mary. So did all the apostles. So did the Christian church for 2,000 years. We pointed out in the creed precisely because these things don't happen. But we believe that God did them. Uh, and the real question is, who is your God? What is your God capable of? If we believe in a God who created out of nothing heaven and earth and all things, uh, which is certainly the God that is presented to us on every page of Scripture, uh, then it is an easy thing for God to create in the womb of a virgin. Uh, Which is really more difficult? To believe that God created the entire universe by His power, by His word, or to believe that God by His power created uh, a a child in the womb of a virgin. Uh, What it comes down to is, who do you believe God is? What do you believe about God? Uh, So that's the first point we want to acknowledge. It's a miracle. We don't try to defend this. Some have done that, say we can find some natural explanation for how the virgin conceived. And, and you could point to the, the statistics that you know it's technically possible for a virgin to conceive. It's just very uh, rare. That's not the approach we take to explain this. It's a miracle. The angel Gabriel himself acknowledged that. In the second place, we are told here in Luke that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and the power of the Most High God overshadowed her and in that way God enabled her to conceive. Uh, what's important about that is that Mary conceived. God did not just 
put Jesus in her womb, she conceived. In other words, uh, Jesus is the true natural son of Mary. Uh, He he truly received her flesh, or to put it in in scientific terms, uh, he shares her DNA. Uh, He is truly human. Uh, Those who would have seen the baby Jesus would have said to to Mary, Oh, he has your eyes, or he has your nose, or that sort of thing. He truly received his flesh from from the Virgin Mary. Uh, Now, of course, this this leads to many uh, questions to the the scientists uh, among us. You know, uh, usually you receive only half of, of one, you receive half of one parent's DNA, half of the other parents' DNA. Um, And so there there is certainly mystery that surrounds this whole thing, but the important thing is that he received her very flesh. He is truly human. Uh, Jesus is not just uh, God in some outward human figure or form. He is human. Uh, He is as human as any of us. Uh, He's not a, a divine phantom uh, that, that sort of looked human. Uh, he wasn't just put in, in Mary's womb. Uh, he was conceived there. Uh, that means as well uh, that Jesus is not like the demigods of, of Greek and Roman culture, those who are half God, half man. You think of uh, the ancient uh, heroes like Achilles, uh, some of these uh, half God, half man uh, people. Uh, Jesus is not like that. He is fully God, fully man. Uh, he is man in every way that we are also human. He has a human body. He has a human soul. He has a human mind, a human spirit. Uh, he's one of us in every way. Uh, and, and yet, he is also the eternal Son of God. And Scripture is just as clear on that. Uh, we saw that last time when we looked at the, the expression, uh, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. Uh, again, Colossians 1 says, In him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. He's Fully God, fully man. Uh, so it's important when we confess that Jesus was conceived by the Virgin, uh, by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, that he, he truly was conceived. Uh, he's one of us. Uh, number three, an often overlooked detail in, in these, uh, these two Gospels, is that although the baby Jesus did not share in the biological flesh of Joseph... Uh, Joseph is an adopted father. Uh, He was nonetheless adopted by Joseph and therefore legally Joseph's heir. Uh, He is an heir to Joseph's name and lineage. You know, if Joseph had a last name, uh, which they didn't have in that day, although he might have been called Joseph Ben David as a son of David, uh, Jesus would have inherited Joseph's last name. Uh, And Matthew's gospel really makes a point of emphasizing this. Uh, He mentions that it is Joseph, not Mary, it's Joseph who gives Jesus his name. Joseph calls him Jesus. Uh, And there there that shows a legal adoption. It's a father, adopted father, giving his child uh, his name. Uh, And that's important because the Messiah, the promised Messiah, was to be a son of David and the lawful heir, the legal heir to David's throne. 
Uh, now, Mary was also a descendant of David, but she was not a descendant of David by the, by the uh, royal line. Joseph's line goes all the way down through the kings uh, that are mentioned in the books of Kings, uh, right to the very last king, and, and then continues on to, to Joseph. Joseph is the heir to David's throne, and because he adopted Jesus, Jesus is as well as his firstborn son. Now, with all that being said, there is a lot that we don't know about the virgin birth and conception. And in addition to that, there are many things that we know not to be the case. Things that we know are not true that are often uh, wrongly believed to be true. For example, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that uh, it teaches the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, uh, which is not referring to Jesus' conception but to Mary's, to when Mary was conceived in the womb of her mother, so Jesus' grandmother. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary herself was conceived in such a way that she too was free from sin uh, because they, they find it impossible that Jesus could possibly have been conceived in the womb of a sinner. Uh, so they say Mary must also have been sinless. Uh, however, this is simply not a doctrine that Scripture teaches Uh, Mary was most favored among women. Uh, Scripture uses that phrase. Uh, And Mary was given tremendous honor in being the mother of Jesus. But Mary was still a sinner like the rest of us. There's nowhere in Scripture that teaches that Mary was without sin. Uh, The the Roman Catholic Church, as anyone uh, remotely familiar with them, can, can attest, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has developed this obsession with Mary. Uh, she is worshipped almost like a god. Uh, and, 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 it, and so they, the, in what they teach about Mary, they go far, far beyond what Scripture actually teaches. Nowhere in Scripture does it say she was not uh, a sinner. Uh, the fact is, Jesus did obtain His flesh from the Virgin Mary even though she was a sinner. And Jesus was not contaminated by that sin because Jesus is God. God God is not contaminated uh, by sin. Uh, In addition to this, the Roman Catholic Church also teaches that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. Uh, This is why Roman Catholics use the title the Virgin Mary and and capitalize virgin because it's a title and implies that she remains even today a virgin. Uh, So they believe that after Jesus was conceived in her, she took a vow of celibacy and and remained a virgin for the rest of her life. Uh, Now, where does this come from? It comes from a view in the Roman Catholic Church that sexuality is somehow impure. It's a view that goes far, far back in the Roman Catholic Church. This unhealthy obsession with celibacy and virginity uh, as, as evidenced, for example, by the vows that priests and monks and nuns take to, to remain celibate. It's a distorted and it's an unhealthy view of, of sexuality that fails to see the goodness and purity of that which God created. God created man male and female and said it is very good and he gave them the command fruitful and multiply. As a Reformed church, we don't see sexuality as something that is lower or as something that is impure, but as something that is holy and, and praised by God. Uh, 
Uh, and, and this view of the, the perpetual virginity of Mary uh, is, is actually contrary to, to Scripture. Uh, Matthew 1, verse 25, for example, tells us that Joseph had no sexual relations with Mary until she had given birth, which implies that he did afterwards. Uh, and, and indeed, we know from Scripture of at least four brothers of Jesus, biological brothers uh, of Jesus, as well as two sisters. Uh, so, so that all told, Jesus had at least six biological siblings, uh, you know, a true, a true Dutch family. Uh, they had at least six, and there may well have been uh, even more. Uh, one of them, for example, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus. James wrote the letter of James that we still have in, in our Bibles. Uh, and there may well have been more siblings that, that are not even named. Uh, and on top of that, it, it actually would have been a sin. It would have been a sin for Mary to take a vow of celibacy uh, to be, because she had already taken a vow of marriage. Uh, she, she was married to Joseph. Uh, the reformer John Calvin actually says on this point that uh, if she had taken such a vow, she would have committed treachery by allowing herself to be married to a husband while refusing that which pertains to marriage. Uh, he says she would have poured contempt on the holy covenant of marriage. It would have been sinful for Mary to take a vow of celibacy. Uh, so as a Reformed church, uh, one, of, one of the uh, defining features we want to characterize our church is, is that we are a people of the book. We hold to that which Scripture teaches. We ground our convictions in the Word of God, not in the doctrines of men. Uh, yes, we do honor Mary. We honor her as greatly blessed among women, uh, but we do not believe her to be sinless, uh, nor do we believe that she remained a virgin. Uh, nor, for that matter, do we share in the low and, and really immature view of sexuality uh, that, that historically has been promulgated by the, by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, we see it as a good gift created by, by God. So with all that being said then, we might ask the question, why then does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? Uh, if it's not because... As, as the Roman Catholic Church sees that sexual relations are unholy, and, and so they could not have produced Jesus. If it's not that, uh, which Scripture certainly doesn't teach that, uh, nor that virginity is a holier or more purer state, uh, why then does the virgin conception of Jesus matter? Now, I want to ask that question on two different fronts and answer, answer it on two different levels. If the question is, why do we have to believe this? Because we don't really see a reason why it matters. If that's the question, why do we confess this? Why do we uphold this doctrine? Then the very simple answer that should be given to that is because Scripture teaches it. You, know, you don't need a reason why if Scripture teaches it, then we, we believe it. Uh, so this was the question asked a generation or two ago, uh, particularly in the very early 1900s. Uh, there, there was a big movement in liberal Christianity that said, there's no reason why Jesus need to, needs to be born of a virgin, and so we, don't need, we, we really don't need to hold on to that doctrine. Uh, well, no, even if there's no good reason... We still hold to it because Scripture plainly teaches it. 
so if that's the question, then, then our answer is quite simple. Scripture teaches it, so we confess it and we, we believe it. Uh, otherwise, our, our, our very uh, faithfulness to Scripture is at stake. Uh, now, if we stand on that ground and we say, okay, we must confess it, we must believe it because Scripture teaches it, then we might ask the question on a second level, but then why does? Why does Scripture teach it? Uh, it's good to ask uh, that question, but that's a different question of why must we believe it. It's simply why does Scripture teach it? Now, that's not an easy question to answer. Uh, One theory that has often actually been taught, even in Reformed churches in some circles, is is that Jesus needed to be conceived of a virgin because in that way he avoided having an earthly father and and original sin is only passed down through through the father. Uh, So original sin, the, the inherent sinfulness of human nature, the theory is that gets passed through dads only, uh, and so that's why Jesus couldn't have had a dad. Now, that's an attractive explanation because it sort of fits within the broader Reformed uh, view or, or theology, but as nice as that, that idea may sound, it's not taught in Scripture. Uh, there's no, nowhere in Scripture that says uh, original sin is only passed through, through the Father, nor is it the reason that Scripture itself gives for why Jesus was born uh, uh, without sin. It doesn't say he was born without sin because he had no father, But rather, Scripture teaches us the reason Jesus is sinless is because He's God. It's by by virtue of His divinity, by being God, that He is without sin. Uh, You see that explicitly in Luke uh, 1, verse 35, uh, where the angel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's the presence and power of the Spirit and the fact that He's the Son of God that makes Him holy, not the fact that He didn't have an earthly father. Uh, So it's not the absence of of something in His human nature, it's the presence of His divine nature that makes Jesus holy and without sin. Uh, So then why does He need to be born of a virgin? Well, the most obvious answer seems to be, in the first place at least, because this means that he is fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin uh, to show that he inherited his flesh from Mary, but at the same time to show he receives his existence from God. Uh, he, is not, uh, he is not merely man, but also God. And that's, the, that's what the angel Gabriel seems to imply in, in Luke 1, verse 35. Therefore the child will be called holy, the Son of God. It's a virgin birth that shows, that demonstrates, Jesus is God. Uh, now, now, some might object and say, well, you know, couldn't Jesus have had an earthly father and mother and, and still, still be God? Uh, well, the logic of, of Luke 1 says no. Uh, it's because he, was, uh, create, or because he was born by the power of the Holy Spirit that he is to be regarded as God. The, the, the conception of Jesus shows he is fully God, fully man. Uh, That's the reason Scripture itself gives for the virgin birth. Uh, 
Now, now the birth of Jesus through a woman is absolutely essential because otherwise Jesus would not be fully man. It's through the flesh and blood of Mary that he becomes a true man and is therefore also able to be our mediator. If Jesus was, as some uh, in in early Christian history taught, if he was only uh, God, but not really man, more like an appearance of man, if, if that's all he was, he could not be our mediator. Because God punishes man for man's sin. He must be man. Uh, Hebrews 2 verse 11 teaches this explicitly. He says, uh, The one who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified by Him all have one nature. Uh, The one who sanctifies our race must be one of us, must have the same nature as the rest of us. Or Hebrews 2 verse 14, uh, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. He became one of us in order to stand in our place before the throne of God. Uh, In fact, Hebrews 2 verse 16 says it again. Uh, He says, Surely it is not angels that God helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest uh, on our behalf to make propitiation for our sins. And that's the the approach that the Catechism then also takes in answering this question. Uh, Why do you confess uh, or, excuse me, what do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? Uh, the, the catechism focuses on the fact that Jesus is fully man. It says that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the Holy Spirit. Thus he is the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. Our Savior needs to be one of us if ever He is to be our Savior. Uh, Now, it might also be added, in addition to this, that this doctrine matters because here is also the fulfillment of so many scriptures. Uh, Jesus was born of a virgin in order to fulfill scripture. Uh, We saw this a little bit earlier this morning as well. And and this is the point that the Gospel of Matthew makes explicitly. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and told him uh, that, that the child and Mary had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, Now that's a reference, as we saw this morning, back to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, now, many, many people have, have critiqued that and said, yeah, but that's not really what Isaiah meant. And we saw that this morning. That is not in the first place what Isaiah was referring to. Uh, however, uh, this prophecy of Isaiah has both an immediate fulfillment and a final fulfillment And it wasn't Christians who first made that up. It's not like Christians uh, decided that after the fact we're going to reinterpret Isaiah. The Jews themselves, in the centuries to follow Isaiah's own prophecy, the Jews themselves said, there's something more to this. Uh, There's something uh, here that's pointing to the Messiah. That that was a Jewish conviction, not one that Christians uh, invented. And, And so they recognized that that the Messiah was to be born of a virgin. 
it was so yes it was a sign to Ahaz in that day referring to those events but it was also meant to sh- to point us to the the Messiah and you can see this all the more because in Isaiah 7 8 and 9 Isaiah goes on to describe the work of the Messiah so he introduces that in Isaiah 7 with this virgin shall conceive but he spends Isaiah 8 and 9 talking about the work of the Messiah uh, the, this child Emmanuel just keeps on getting mentioned. Uh, and especially when you get to Isaiah 9, uh, the prophet says, To us a, son, or a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, among, among other uh, things. Uh, so this prophecy clearly was pointing to a greater fulfillment still to come. The Jews themselves recognized that. And the Christians recognized when Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin, there, there is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was speaking about. Uh, so Matthew is not taking scripture out of context, though many, many say that he is. But he's looking at what's the ultimate fulfillment, what's the final meaning of that prophecy. Uh, so that, that is also certainly a reason why this doctrine matters. Because Jesus was born of a virgin to fulfill Scripture. Uh, not only does it show that He is fully God and fully man, uh, and therefore the only mediator, but it also shows us He's the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He's the Savior God said would come. He's the promised Messiah. Uh, that's why it's so tragic that the Jews today still wait for the Messiah because they missed him 2,000 years ago when he came. And the virgin birth of Jesus is one of the clearest evidences of that. They missed him, though God said, this is how he will come. Uh, So brothers and sisters, uh, certainly this is a mysterious doctrine. It's not an easy doctrine, uh, and we certainly do not fully understand it. How can anyone understand uh, how, how God and man can coexist in one person? Yet at the same time, this is what, one of the church's oldest affirmations. From the very beginning of Christian history, it has been affirmed. He was born, or conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, and, and so it's a precious doctrine that we ought to hold on to, though the world laughs at it. Uh, though the world uh, thinks we might, might, might think we're crazy because of it, we hold on to it and confess and give to God the glory He uh, deserves for bringing it to pass. And we say, Jesus was conceived of a virgin. We don't understand that. We're not trying to explain it. But that's what God did. And it's because of that 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 we can know that Jesus is God who can save us and man who can stand in our place. And as we know, salvation belongs to God alone. He cannot just be a man. He must also be fully God uh, if ever He is to be our Savior. And yet He cannot be only God. He must be man if ever He stands in our place. So we confess He was conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. Amen. Uh, Let's sing in response to God's word from hymn 4, stanzas 1, 3, and 4.